Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Strictly VC Download. We hope you've had a great week. Ours has somehow zipped past really quickly. It was definitely a harder week for some of the big companies out there. Facebook found itself the center of unwanted attention following a Wall Street Journal series of articles that show Facebook is aware of how its services harm users, including teenage girls who've said that Instagram made them feel worse about themselves. Apple's fortress of privacy is crumbling fast, thanks in part to Slack, where employees are organizing against policies they disagree with. As a former Macworld editor told The Verge this week, there's a shift in balance of power going on at Apple, where employees are no longer afraid their boss will fire them because they know if they're punished for saying bad things about Apple, Apple will face consequences of its own. Not last, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin is suffering from an elevated turnover rate, says CNBC, with a space company losing talent primarily from the pressure that CEO Bob Smith has put on people to return to the office. And that report follows an open letter crafted by 21 former and current Blue Origin employees who have accused the company of sacrificing safety in an effort to win the billionaire space race and fostering a toxic and sexist work culture. Hey, but it's not all bad news people. Succession will be back in a couple of weeks, and we cannot wait. We really do love shows about wealth and influence and corruption since there's so little of it in our daily lives covering the Silicon Valley scene. Ha. And now, a bit more news. Aussie Media, a digital media startup that had raised $83 million from a host of prominent investors, including Ron Conway, David Drummond, Laureen Powell Jobs' Emerson Collective, and the Ford Foundation, today announced that it is shutting down. Just five days earlier, the New York Times revealed that Samir Rao, the company's co-founder and CFO, had impersonated Alex Piper, the head of unscripted programming for YouTube Originals, on a call with Goldman Sachs bankers who were interested in investing in the company. As Piper, Rao had reassured the Goldman execs that Ozzy was racking up millions of views on YouTube. However, the Goldman team thought Piper's voice sounded digitally altered and decided to contact Piper's office directly rather than using the Gmail address that Ozzy had provided. Confused, the real Piper told Goldman that he had never been part of the call, leading Ozzy to confess that the whole con job had been cooked up by Rao, who was suffering from what they termed a mental health crisis. Observers had long questioned Ozzy's claims that it had as many as 50 million monthly unique users. Eugene Robinson, a one-time columnist for Ozzy, likened Ozzy's traffic numbers to a Potemkin village. Now, it turns out Ozzy's skeptics were right all along. In case you missed it, there was an interesting story in Wednesday's Wall Street Journal about university endowments banking record returns on their venture capital investments. For the year ending June 30th, Brown University reportedly saw its VC returns soar past 50%. Duke announced venture gains of 55.9%, while Washington University in St. Louis saw its VC portfolio grow by 65%. Currently, university endowments with over $1 billion in assets devote 11% of their portfolio on average to venture capital, while Yale University had more than a quarter of its $31 billion endowment tied up in VC funds. 
While a significant amount of these results undoubtedly stem from unrealized gains, these huge returns almost certainly mean that more money will find its way into VC coffers. Investment professionals like Robert Durden, investment chief for the University of Virginia Investment Management Company, are clearly concerned about overheating the market. We don't know what lies ahead, he told the journal. But in a world where VC is producing almost double the return of the S&P 500, look for university endowments to keep partying with their VC friends like it's 1999. Up next, our interview with the legendary New York investor, Kevin Ryan. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Strictly VC is brought to you by Tegas. Don't start diligence from scratch on every new name. Instead, get a head start with Tegas. It's the only platform that offers instant access to 20,000-plus investor-led expert calls on public and private companies, from seed stage to IPO. See why so many leading investors rely on Tegas to scale their research. Try it for yourself at www.tegas.co slash strictlyvc. That's www.tegas.co slash strictlyvc. And now our interview with Kevin Ryan, the entrepreneur and investor who first rose to prominence as CEO of the online ad business DoubleClick and has since founded more than a handful of companies, including Business Insider, Guilt Group, MongoDB, The Wedding Registry, Zola, and Pearl Health, a primary care physicians group that just last week raised $18 million in Series A funding led by Andreessen Horowitz. We wanted to talk with Ryan about healthcare since he's about to sink $100 million of mostly his own money into the sector after already investing in 20 healthcare companies in recent years. We wound up talking about a number of other things too. Here's that interview. Hey, Kevin, thank you for making time for me today. It's, it's nice to be reconnecting. Yes, exactly. I did want to talk to you, of course, about your interest in healthcare, which yep. I didn't realize was so extreme. I mean, looking at your portfolio, it seems like you've been very focused on this in recent years. What spurred your interest in the first place? Well, stepping back, one of the things that I always do from an Alicor point of view is think about what are the five to 10 year trends that we want to bet on? And some areas can be overcrowded and you think there's no opportunity there. Everything's already been done. And sometimes you think there's a big opportunity. And so starting two, three years ago, I just felt both in New York and in healthcare in general, there were huge opportunities. And there's huge opportunities because there's so many aspects of the healthcare system that just don't work well. And I say this not as a doctor, but as a patient, it's incredibly expensive. The electronic records are not great, super inefficient. Most of us are very frustrated by this whole healthcare system, which means that there's opportunities. I wouldn't start a company to deliver books to your house to compete with Amazon because frankly, it works unbelievably well and is not that expensive. And so this is the opposite. So just made a big commitment, went out and looked for people, ran across Brenton, who seemed like an amazing person. After that, we brought on Jeff, building up the team. I had already started Nomad Health. I had already made some investments, but just realized I needed a lot more expertise in this area. And so over the last couple of years, we're to the point now where we have a six-person team, uh, a big commitment. It's going incredibly well. We're very happy with our portfolio. And there's a lot more to be done. And just one last thing, I'm looking for a partner in robotics, just as an example, because I think that's another area that will grow over time. It's not as big as healthcare, 
but I will bet on the 10-year trend of more automation and more robotics. And so starting that process as well. But healthcare is going to be our biggest focus of any industry. I think that's really interesting. And I happened to see a Cranes New York story, maybe from May, saying that you were also thinking about a robotics fund. It reminded me a little bit of what Andreessen Horowitz has been doing with sector-focused funds, which of course we saw many years ago, and then people seem to move back from that. Now it's working on, I believe, a gaming fund. It's just launched a seed fund. So you'll have your healthcare focus, and then robotics is going to be another discrete pool of capital? Yes. And the third one, which we'll announce soon, will be more of a social impact fund. So helping nonprofits, helping companies otherwise wouldn't be invested. So slightly different, but a focus. And we have a search out for a partner in that area as well. What's also fascinating to me is that you are overseeing mostly your own capital. You've got this, you call it an evergreen fund, but it's really your capital that's being recycled. In an environment like this, where investors are just trying to cram as much capital as they can into proven entrepreneurs, I'm amazed that you haven't taken on billions of dollars to invest. Why did you make that decision not to do that? Because partly the, the area of the ecosystem that I like to play in and feel most comfortable and know the best is early stage. So if you said, do I want to invest in some company that's worth $3 billion and hopefully it gets to $10 billion, that's not really where I play the biggest, most important role or feel comfortable. So I want to be on the early stage, the most risky, and that just requires less capital. So frankly, we're not capital constrained. We wouldn't be launching all these other things and building up other areas if we were capital constrained. When we start a new company, putting in a million and a half, $2 million is what it takes to get a company off the ground. Then we raise money outside. And if we need to raise a lot of money, we raise a lot of money and we keep investing. We try and cap our investment in any one company at around 10 million. But no, there's lots of opportunities. And so this is where I want to play. And there's another thing is I just think it gives us a different approach. No VC fund you talk to is going to have a social impact fund because their LPs don't want them to do that. But we can do that and we can take a longer term perspective. I'll give you an example. I still own at least half of my shares in Mongo, which I started 14 years ago because they're doing great. The company's worth $30 billion today. So I'm glad that I didn't sell my shares or send them off to investors. So it's just a different approach. No one in this team has investor experience really before they got here. They are entrepreneurs, they are operators, and that's what we consider ourselves. We are really building companies. We just happen to be in the investing role. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you too, just because you made a joke at the outset about how we're both older, you know, a lot of people who've been in this industry since the last bubble are starting to step back. There was the, the great VC resetting, the Savet of Spark deciding to resign, Jeremy Liu of Lightspeed stepping back. I did wonder how you're thinking about this because, you know, you go to the Alley Corp site and of course you have built this team. It's interesting that none of them have been investors previously. I didn't realize that, but of course you're there front and center. I'm just wondering who is your right-hand person there? What happens to Alley Corp as you decide to step back? First of all, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So I'm good for another 10 years. But, you know, it's really the partners. So it's Brenton running the healthcare effort. It's Wendy, who is in the non-healthcare space. And then we'll have other partners. My guess is a year from now, we'll have two or three other partners. It'll be like any firm. I would effectively be the managing partner of the firm. And then there'll be six partners who each have domain expertise and knowledgeable, and we'll have a CFO and things like that. 
Kevin, you mentioned that sometimes you'll invest up to $10 million in a company, including one that you've incubated. The market's gone completely bananas. We're seeing $60 million seed funds. How do you operate in this environment? Is it because you started these companies that people are willing to maybe not throw elbows when you're involved? I'm just wondering how you play in this changed environment. Yeah. So first of all, the the change environment only helps us because so example of Pearl, we put in, I can't remember, a million and a half-ish dollars into that company. They have a big, big equity position. So it depends on a company that will have somewhere between our partners, probably 30 to 60% at that point. Okay. Because the management team has a lot. Sometimes we have some co-founders in there as well. So it's a big position. Then a company like Andreessen came in and you saw a letter round where we raised $18 million with Andreessen being the lead at a big valuation, obviously, big step up. We put in another three or $4 million into that round. So we're the ones choosing who comes in. And we think Andreessen was a great partner. We thought it was a very good valuation. I think it's a company that could be worth a billion dollars in a couple of years, but that's all working very well for us. And by the way, if there's a round that happens at, I don't know, $400 million, at that point, we'll probably stop investing. That's what happens with seed funds. Other large funds will come in. We'll start to be diluted down. And that's mm-hmm. not a problem at all. Our money is most effective when we think we can make 10 times our money. And that's what we're really focused on. We're taking higher risk and getting higher returns. And you're not interested in coming again in at, at the later stages. No, no. But we just put in a bunch of money into Nomad. And Nomad is at roughly a $250 million valuation. But I actually think it's a $2 billion company that can be created. And so I still feel good about it, but it's probably the last round we'll invest in. There are other people who play the role of putting in money and thinking they're going to get a two or three X return on that, which is fantastic for their fund. They're much later stage. They're only going to be in for five years. Right. We want to put our money in, be in for nine years and make a hundred times our money. Right, right, right. Just, just a different game they're yeah. playing. Kevin, you know, I know you've gotten asked this question about 5,000 times over the last, I don't know, 14 years. Are we in a bubble? But just as somebody who has lived through the ups and downs, it does seem like more than ever to me, who's yeah. very much an outsider, that valuations have been totally decoupled from fundamentals. What do you think? So I am completely convinced we are not in a bubble, but let's make sure we define what a bubble is. Okay. Bubble is not the same as a market being overvalued. A bubble is when the entire sector, and I certainly lived through this in 2001, the entire sector goes down by 80%. And that's what's different than just a typical market that drops 25%, valuations go up and down. That's just normal market gyrations. There was a tulip bubble, there was an internet stock bubble, and my company, DoubleClick, and Amazon and Yahoo all went down by more than 80%. And so I think there's zero chance of that. I mean, if you said, is there a chance that Google's price will go down 80%? They only traded like a 30 PE. You think they're going to go to like a 5 PE? No. Now, does that mean that valuations can come down? Absolutely. Does it mean that a bunch of companies will go bankrupt? Yes. But that's a normal part of our ecosystem. That's like asking... If you see a herd of deer, are they all going to be alive a year from now? And it's like, you don't understand deer. And that's not good for the ecosystem. You know, mm-hmm. the wolves have to eat something and this happens. We don't want them all to die, but some of them will. And that's the circle of life. So you're thinking as long as the big, important, established companies are not 
in free fall, then we don't really have anything to worry about. I mean, of course, I'm talking about the companies whose valuations are doubling and tripling within months. I've never seen anything like that before in my career. No, I'm talking about the fact that the companies I cited, the double clicks in Yahoo's and oh. Amazon's, those were publicly traded companies. They've been around for five to eight years, and they still went down by 80%. And then the private companies obviously went down by the same amount. So it was a catastrophe for everyone. That's not going to happen here. Real value is being created here. The Mongos of the world, companies like that that are very highly valued. By the way, Mongo trades today at about 40 times revenues, and they're not profitable yet. So you might look at that and think, oh my God, I think that's exposed. I don't know what the right valuation is. The revenues are growing at 40% a year. So if you think that's going to keep going, that means that they're actually trading at like 10 times revenues three or four years from now. That's not absurd. Now, we can debate this. Maybe that comes down 25%, maybe it goes up 20%. But no, real value is being created. If there's any lesson, in fact, you and I were around when Facebook was valued at $10 billion by DSP. Mm -hmm. I remember that a long time ago. It seemed insane. Mm -hmm. They make $10 billion in profits per quarter right now. So you know what that means? You and I and the entire market grotesquely undervalued that company. And I mean grotesquely. More value has been created across these sectors than anyone anticipated. Nomad Health is a good example. That company is already doing $170 million in revenue. It grew 4X this year to last year. So what do you think it's going to be next year? It's probably going to do $350 million. It's going to get to a billion-dollar run rate. What is that worth? It's worth a lot of money. Real value. They are taking market share from other companies. And they are possibly expanding the market and the market's growing. And so that's just amazing. It is amazing. You've been involved in so many successes over your career. Of course, Guild Group was a company that was growing very quickly, really rocket ship, and then things took a turn. What happened with that company? And what did you learn there that informs how you think about companies now? So here's what happened. There's two things you look about when you start a company. One is, how do you do compared to your competitors? like your market share of what you're doing. And then independently of that is how much is that vertical worth? And so what happened to Gilt is we did a better job, as you remember, than anyone else. There is no company today that has a flash sales model that sells women's clothing and men's clothing that is worth more than Gilt. It won. What happened though, is that the sector became not valuable because the discounting that occurred everywhere online, Macy's didn't really discount, had a terrible website, Mark Jacobs didn't even have a website. Six years later, they both had a website. They were discounting a lot. Farfetch was discounting. TJ Maxx was discounting. And so it was hard for us to stand out. And so it was dynamics that were out of our control. It's a little bit like if you start a solar energy company, it'll do well. But if oil prices go to $2 a barrel, you have no chance. And you don't control that, right? It has to do with Iran. It has to do with shale. You made a bet that oil prices would not be at $2. And if they are you're exposed. So that's what happened to us. Basically, oil prices went way down and therefore there was no way for us to win. But we didn't get outcompeted by other people who were doing what we were doing. Now that you're betting so heavily on healthcare, what are the sort of external factors that maybe you're mindful of now? The big one is the government. Tell me what the healthcare policy in the United States is going to be five years from now. And I'll answer a lot of questions, but obviously we don't know. We were moving towards a more value-based care we think the government is going to be sensitive and wants to make sure that they're getting bang for their buck. And a lot of our companies are oriented around that. 
everyone in the whole country knows we are paying too much for healthcare and not getting the results. And that's true compared to Costa Rica, compared to France, compared to Germany. I mean, it's terrible. And part of that's government policy. How will that change? It could change in ways that hurts some of our companies. And it could change in ways that we think are going to help a lot of our companies. We think that, for example, Vori is going to deliver better musculoskeletal care for people at a lower price. And so we think that we're protected. And if we do that, we will benefit. But that's a bet. You know, I also wanted to ask Kevin about New York. You're one of the highest profile entrepreneurs, investors in the city. How do you think the pandemic impacted the scene there? I talked to a lot of Valley investors who say it helped them make more inroads into New York and other places because all of a sudden everybody was much more accessible. Has the Zoom era helped New York or hurt New York? New York has benefited enormously. And here's why. We actually in the tech sector do not have people leaving New York City. You probably know that New York apartment prices today are above pre-COVID levels. So that only happens on a supply and demand basis because more people want to be here than wanted to be here two years ago. San Francisco does have people leaving, going to Austin, going to other places. We have some hedge fund people leaving, but we have investments in 35 New York-based companies. We don't have a single executive that has left to go somewhere else. So New York is doing great. It's going to continue to do great. And in particular, healthcare. Healthcare was a tiny sector in New York five years ago from an investment point of view. We mm -hmm. had great hospitals. We had great discoveries. But until Flatiron Health came, which has been the seminal healthcare startup company in New York City, mm -hmm. there was nothing. In 1996, when we started DoubleClick, Boston was the epicenter of East Coast technology. And it was because of Wang and Deck and all those companies that went away. And all the VC firms, remember Greylock was based there. Mm -hmm. you know, all, General all Catalyst. Today, frankly, Boston is not very significant on the East Coast in internet technology. New York has just completely taken that place and has enormous startup companies. Five years ago today, you would have said to me, Kevin, I hear what you're saying, but there's not a single publicly traded internet company worth more than $3 billion. And you can look it up. That's true. Today, there are four companies worth more than $30 billion. Mongo, Etsy. Peloton and Datadog. And then another 10 like Compass and all kinds of other people, Oscar, they're worth three to 10 billion. So what we're really saying just in that sector, there's probably $200 billion worth of value created when our basis at that time was like 10. I mean, it's unbelievable. And other places have grown as well, but that rate of growth is remarkable. And the reason New York is going to continue to be very successful is that if you interviewed my son's a senior at Yale, if you interview his class and ask him, where do they want to go live? They want to go live in New York. Why That's is that? I mean, I love, love, love New York, but I'm just wondering what has New York done so much better than San Francisco okay. and California? Is it the state governance? I can tell you exactly. <laughs> Let's not forget when I moved to New York City, which I know was a long time ago, but in 85 or let's say even 95. In 92, 90, there were 2,200 murders in New York City. Mm -hmm. San Francisco sat there and thought, you know what? It's just a dangerous city. I don't mm -hmm. want to go. Today, there's maybe 400 murders. So the crime has almost disappeared. I don't know a single person who's had their house robbed or their car broken into in New York. It doesn't exist. And I hardly know anyone in San Francisco. Who that hasn't had that experience. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? That doesn't have a story to tell me. My, I mean, my son worked there for three months and he's six foot three. My brother has been there for the last 10 years. He's six foot three. Both have been attacked on the streets. Wow. By, you know, I never have. No one has. So New York has gotten to be a better city on crime. The schools have gotten better. The museums, 
the cultural life, all of that is extracted. The shed is open. We've had a huge, you know, billion dollar cultural institution started. It's just a better city than it was. Yeah. And San Francisco, frankly, the quality of life, and I love San Francisco, but the quality of life has deteriorated. And everyone I talk to there says that that's true. Yes, unfortunately, I've I've lived it. <laughs> I'm still rooting for San Francisco, but it's a great city. We all want it to be successful. My brother lives there. My oldest son just started Stanford Business School, so he's out there. So we wanted to do well. But New York, on a relative basis, compared mm-hmm. to a lot of other big cities, has done a better job over 20 years than mm-hmm. other cities. Kevin, I want to let you go. I know that you're in France and you probably want to get on with your evening, but you mentioned your sons. Congratulations. Yeah. They're you know, at Yale and Stanford Business School, respectively. Could be this be a family business? Do they want to join you when they graduate? You know, it's early. I think my oldest son, whether or not he joins me right away, he will certainly, he's planning on starting a company. He worked for a startup in Paris for the last four years and had an amazing experience. And, and, and my wife is French and I grew up in Geneva. So we have deep ties in Europe. If he were on this call, he'd say he's planning on moving back to New York and probably joining a company or starting a company. So he'll do that. And if it ever makes sense, I think it's good that kids do their own thing for a long time. If they ever want to come work with me later on, obviously I'm open to that. My other son doesn't know. He's he's majoring in cognitive science, interested in architecture, doesn't know what he's going to do. So we'll see. And my daughter, who's a junior at St. Andrews in Scotland, she's not sure what she's going to do yet either. So still early for them. Right, right, right. Well, again, it sounds like they're well on their way. Kevin, thank you. I really appreciate you making time for me. Congratulations on your success with this healthcare stuff and happy to share the news that you are doubling down in this area. Great. Yeah. And one thing you were asking about before is that the rate of investment that we're going to be making in healthcare compared to the rate in the last couple of years is doubling or tripling. So this is a major step up. And that's why the team is bigger. The opportunity is bigger. So we're very, very excited about it. It's going very well. Terrific. Well, thank you so much again. It was really nice talking to you. Great. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much.